This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. My name's Danielle. And we're back with you again, once again, uh, to do this fine film podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. How was your week? Um, it is uh, okay so far. I uh, Can you see right now? I don't know <laughs> if you can see me, but... I can um, see you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you noticing that there's something going on with my face? Maybe that my eyebrows are looking a little less crazy. Is that something? (laughs) They never look crazy to me, but they look great today. Okay. What's going on? I was hoping you would say that because (laughs) I have had another person touch my eyebrows for the first time in over a year. On purpose? On purpose. Yes. I am beyond thrilled. I was very (laughs) nervous. I was very nervous going. Okay. But, you know, I just needed to attend to this mess that I've created over the past year and a half. So (laughs) it was I mean, it was that thing where like I was hesitant. And then once I got it done, I was like, oh, my God, I feel (laughs) So incredible. I feel like a new person. Just really? a very simple thing. You know? Was it threading? Was it like No, I actually didn't get threading because um I was unsure of where to get that around here. But I went to like a <laughs> kind of like a benefit, you know, benefit eyebrow yeah. bar thing. And um the woman who did my eyebrows was incredibly safe. She was double masked and she had a face shield. So nice. I was like, that's my girl. And um she was very nice about the state of my eyebrows, which were for me, it was very crazy because um, there were errant hairs literally just like poking out of every every area of my face. And I feel so much, so much better. What I don't did know she why. do? Was it just like an eyeliner? Like she just did she just line them? Did she trim them? Like <laughs> she just did she, she take a weed whacker? And then she, she gave them a shape again because that's the thing was nice. that they were just going everywhere and i know that you say that i looked fine but it was that thing where i would catch oh my god this is so embarrassing but um i'd be like in the mirror like after a shower and i would catch this like super long eyebrow hair it was like an a <laughs> vagoda style thing that was like coming down like halfway to my eye and i was like oh my god i felt crazy i was like uh and, and i would like trim it myself but, you know, to have them kind of be tamed again felt great. That's awesome. I mean, you got that second vax and you're like, I am in these streets getting these eyebrows taken care of before all else. Well, and but this is the thing is that I 
I was talking to our friend Shalewa about this today because I was a little like, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about all of these things that are, are like normal things that now is like, oh, are we going to go back to doing things like getting our eyebrows yeah. done, getting haircuts, you know, doing that kind of stuff? Because um, I've been pretty I've been keeping it pretty tame. I mean, I'm not saying perfect, but I, you know, like I have. I've left the house a few times, yeah. but I definitely have kept the grooming stuff to a minimum because, you know, honestly, like I was terrified. But so, yeah, I was I was talking to Shalewa and I was like, oh, my God, I'm feeling very um, I'm, I'm having this weird anxiety kick in. And I, I think it's because I just am now like, oh, well, now that I have a second vaccine, what does that mean? Um, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know what I'm feeling right now, yeah. except I'm anxious. I think anxiety feels like a good, uh, feels like a good emotion on the heels of the year that we've had. Yeah. Um, because it feels strange. It's going to feel strange to be around people. Um, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I really don't. Like, I don't have any plans to go out and party or have dinner or drinks or anything because I'm still so nervous about it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I, I to me, I know we've talked about this introvert extrovert thing or whatever many times in the past. And I was kind of like, I'm a floater. Um, I'm not 100 percent either way. But I, I I do think I'm looking forward, I guess, to doing things again. Like I, I would love to see friends. I would love to travel, but I'm nervous. And, yeah. and that's a lot, I think for me, I'm not this person that's like, yep, the like, let's go back out there. I'm really exactly. like, I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm feeling, you know? And I, that's why I'm glad you went today. Like, I'm glad you dipped a toe in and it went fine. And you saw that the person that you were seeing was completely safe. And I think that's the best we can do right now. You know, like you're taking care of yourself and you're going to places where they take care of themselves and I think it's totally cool to dip that toe in. I I kind of don't know how to do it here because I didn't really go out before. Yeah. So it's not like, a, like they closed the arc light. That's the first place I would have run to. <gasps> oh, can we talk <laughs> about that? Closed. How do you close the arc light? How do you close the Cinerama Dome? How? Uh, I mean, I keep hearing different things now about how you know, they, there might be a shot at saving the building or whatever, but I, you know, who knows? I mean, it's like Ugh. LA real estate feels ruthless. So it is I'm brutal. It's brutal. But just, I think for us personally, though, when I heard that that was happening the other day, I was like, I felt grief. Like I was basically yeah. like, that's like a place that you and I went to all the time. All the all time. All the time. That was our hang. I felt so comfortable there. It was so easy to park. It was so easy to just, I could go there by myself. We went and would just have like, you know, dinner or drinks. Like it was a cool place to hang out. Yeah, we ate those little fucking flatbreads or whatever <laughs> they would serve in that that weird <laughs> restaurant with the giant booths. <laughs> the trio of the trio of sauces and then they're like let's yes. protect everyone from watching you eat this and put these booths at nine feet it felt like you were eating in a hotel that's kind of how i felt totally. like you know you're on a business trip and you're like well i don't have time to go anywhere i'm just gonna eat at the hotel bar and that's what it felt like eating at the arc light if the arc light is gone what's gonna get me to the epicenter of hollywood mm -hmm. like when am i gonna drive down hollywood and highland to see elmo 
Oh, of course. I have friends that would work, like have jobs in that area, like that have right. worked, have to go to Hollywood and Highland every day for work, and they're just like, man. I mean, it's like wild. It's like you just won't look out the window, and it's just like the wildest things are happening at all hours of the day, in the daytime especially, which is weird. Yeah. In the day, listen to me. If it ever comes down to it, and I lose it entirely. You better believe I'm buying an Elmo costume and a hatchet and going to Hollywood and Highland. <laughs> no one will blink an eye. They'll be like, oh, that's that's hatchet Elmo. Let's get a picture. Like nobody will blink an eye. <laughs> when I worked at TCM Film Festival, it's that thing where it is happening in that area and you're down there for a week. Like we would show up a few days before the festival and then leave after it was over. So you're down there for an entire week. And when you have to literally mingle in that scene about 20 times a day, walking back and forth between the movie theaters that we're <laughs> using, it becomes like that last day feels like death i don't have the energy for any of this anymore it's just too much stimulation yeah too much you know random shit happening people yelling at each other uh you know people kind of literally pushing you out of the way to take a photograph of a of a celebrity star that makes no sense like it does i don't understand why these people are like jumping at the chance to lay down on the dirty ass street Oh, for like, they have you know. no idea how much feces has been on that street just that day, just that day alone. Human feces spread from sea to shining sea. And they're like, let me get down here and put my face in Marilyn Monroe's feet in her shoes. My favorite thing whenever I used to work near the Walk of Fame and my favorite thing in the world um, was people. And I heard it every time I walked by, people would go, their feet were so tiny. And I'm like, you could have learned this information on Wikipedia. Like, I do not understand the Walk of Fame at all, especially now. Like modern day Walk of Fame, they pay for that. They pay for their own slabs. Yeah, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that they pay for those slabs. They're not um, handed out for merit. No, that's what I thought, too. And then I'm like, wait, when I found out that people paid for them, I'm like, who? gives a shit about this most expensive sidewalk on the planet that's all it is now and it always has like pools of piss like puddled in the palm of the hands the handprints like come on folks this is not this is not where it's at go to the observatory for fuck's sake why is someone pissing in frederick march's shoes why is somebody doing that because they're so tiny they're so tiny. Let's piss in them and see how much piss can fill up these shoes. And then someone will come up with their fucking face in them. Somebody will put their baby on the ground to <laughs> flash a peace sign or whatever. Oh, God. I have uh, never been so interested in a celebrity that I wanted to know what their hands and feet look like. But look, that's not my fetish. I'm not going to yuck your yum. If that's what it's about for you, great. But I'm telling you, that sidewalk is the filthiest, most expensive piece of property in this country yeah i so when my dad the last time my dad was in town i uh took him and my mother down there because honestly this is oh my god this is embarrassing did they have to take a dump you're like my dad had to take a dump so i took him down yeah so i put i told him to go to Marilyn monroe's footprints and just do a dump there no i um my dad and mom i took them down there um they because the only reason why i did it was because they told me oh you're talking when i told them oh but have you ever been down to hollywood and they're like you mean like at 
Disney where they have the footprints. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like they only thought the footprints existed at Disney World. And I was like, no, those are copied from the actual shit. We need to go down there now just so you can move this reference point. <laughs> just so you can know the origin story. <laughs> yeah. Just so you can stop offending me intellectually. Um, so I took them down there and they were like, mm, what have you done? Like, I don't know <laughs> why we visited my daughter at all why do you live here are you safe what's happening <laughs> meanwhile i guarantee down on vine someone's just swinging a pipe in the middle of the sidewalk for no reason there's always a shirtless person swinging a pipe on vine that's all i can tell you about la yeah it's like i remember uh when i would come out of uh the egyptian yep over uh farther down hollywood and i would sometimes get out of a, mo a movie at like 12 1 a.m and just seeing what was going on at that hour <laughs> i was like oh shit <laughs> like what <laughs> like how do i rocketeer out of this situation <laughs> immediately oh i love it so much yeah it is like not the move to go so to what that. you're saying is post quarantine you want to meet there. That's the first place you want to go. It's the first place I want to go. I want to strip <laughs> naked like that Alanis Morissette video. <laughs> and just be like, you live, you learn, you fight, you burn. <laughs> you live, <laughs> you laugh, you learn. Thank you, Spider-Man. <laughs> um, okay, so do we have a mailbag this week? Yeah, we got a great mailbag this week. We do, actually. Um, I would love to read it if you yeah, would allow go for me it. to. Can I? Mother, may I read this email? Um, in fact, it is about mothers. It's about mothers and daughters, actually. Um, so we did get an email this week from um, Lee. And she writes, Hi, Millie and Danielle. I am writing in the hope that this email gets to you both and I can thank you properly for the joy, laughter and connection that you are bringing to my youngest daughter, Bridget, and I during this pandemic. I am writing to you from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where we are in a province wide shutdown, which means pretty much everything is closed and prohibited. Our lives have been reduced to the house and walks with our dog. As you both know, the pandemic and the never ending lockdown are hard on the soul. But as hard as this is on adults, I think it's especially hard on teenagers. My 16-year-old daughter, Bridget, can't see her mates and is doing 11th grade online. Not always easy. A bit about Bridget. You would both adore her as she is funny, clever, cheeky, kind, great company, and has great taste in music, books, and movies. Hmm. One of our pandemic highlights has been your wonderful podcast, which we generally listen to separately the day it is released, but then talk about for the rest of the week. We repeat your best lines, tell each other which parts we found hysterical, add films to our watch list, and agree that you would be our ideal best friends. You bring a ray of sunshine into the week and provide us with so much to laugh about. What more does a mom need? We didn't know how much we needed you and are grateful for what you give us. Regards, Lee. And the P.S., Yes, the P.S. Just so Bridget's brother and sister, Aiden and Rory, don't get jealous. 
you would adore them as well. <laughs> I love this mom so much. Oh, my God. Lee, thank it. you for writing in. Thank you, Bridget, for listening. I love that you listen separately and then come together and have a, a quorum to talk about this podcast. Um, I think it's so lovely that you like your kids this much. Like, I don't know. Like, you seem to actually know your children and are interested in what they're interested in. And I just think that's fantastic. Like, this is this is the age that I feel like parents wait for, where they can kind of, like, be on the level with their kids and be like, here's what I'm into. Let's watch this movie. Or I just I love it. I love that you found a point of commonality and I love that it was us. And I'm so sorry for all the cursing. Yeah, I, know. I always say that. I'm like, oh, we're cussing a lot, moms. Uh, well, and I, listen, this this letter couldn't have come at a better time because we're this is a Mother's Day episode we're doing. I, right. I think you probably know that by now. But um, I it's so great because. As somebody who, like, is trying to never discuss this podcast with their mother, <laughs> I love that this is something that you share, you know? And that's sweet. And I love that it's provided you guys sort of, like, a conversation to have throughout the week. That's just really special. I'm That makes me very happy to know all of this. Yeah. And I hope you know how special your relationship is. And just, you know, I hope that we can continue to give you reasons to come together because those days are few and far between. I'm talking like somebody who has kids. I have no idea. You could be totally <laughs> sick of your children by now and be like, get out of my house. I've been looking at you for a year straight. Although I will say doing 11th grade online sounds ideal. <laughs> yeah, uh, doing it online. Um I mean, I, I think it could be probably hard for her daughter, but honestly, as somebody who spends many days a week in online learning with a kindergartner, mm -hmm. I'll just say an 11th grader sounds like a breeze. Like you don't have to sit in the room with them and make sure they're not <laughs> picking their nose and like taking naps. And I mean, I listen, I love my nephew so much, but there are times where, um, I'll literally walk out of the room for five seconds and he's like on the floor, <laughs> breaking crayons like and the rest of the class is taking a test and he's just like biting the penguin <laughs> erasers that are on top of his pencils and i'm like oh my god like it's literally like a constant you have to constantly monitor a six-year-old but an 11th grader <laughs> sounds a little bit more like they're just kind of they're good you don't have to fuss with them too much what we're but. saying bridget is get some erasers <laughs> start chewing them down Go through the toolbox, see if there's anything you can loosen or mess with. Break into your own computer. Just like start start exploring. Get some of that kindergartner energy in you. Maybe it'll make 11th grade a little bit easier. But you're not missing anything. I'm sure you're missing your friends. Um, yeah. Friends are very important at that age for me, for sure. I think that's yeah. that's the hardest part. Like I feel I do feel for kids not being able to see their friends, but. I don't know how bad I'm supposed to feel for them because we didn't have the Internet or any streaming films or anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe we just raise a generation of introverts and it's fucking fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't say that I would have loved to 
be in the classroom at that age, except for friends. And also like the one or two club type things that I actually enjoyed going to, which there was like a writing club that I was in that, you know, I might have would have wanted to attend. But other than that, like and that's after school. So it doesn't even matter. <laughs> like that wasn't even a school based project. Yeah, it was an extracurricular. <laughs> I would love my friends in anything that's not class, actually. <laughs> Did you write with the big plume pens in writing club? Like, I feel like it's such a it sounds like it would be such a exotic, fancy affair. Oh, my God. It was so obnoxious. I mean, you want to talk about like Wonder Boys, like when we talked about the writing (laughs) classes in Wonder Boys a couple episodes ago, like it was so embarrassing because uh, you have to understand this is the like early. It was probably like 90 I would say 94 or something like that, 95, where that whole like beatnik coffee Uh uh, shop culture was the shit. Like I used to sit around these really pretentious coffee shops in the city. Like I would drive to Atlanta, drive like 45 minutes into the city to sit in a coffee shop that was called Cafe Intermezzo. And it was completely dark. It was as dark as, you know, A bathroom on the inside of a house with no windows. And then they would have like a couple of little tea lights. And it was just like alternative people in berets smoking cigarettes. And I thought it was like Greenwich Village circa like 1959. Like I was like, oh, my God, this is the center of culture in my life. And I would write high school poetry in these like giant books with like fucking angels on them and shit. And then I would take these books to this writing club and, you know, we would have these like poetry slams where basically like we would stand up and read our poetry to people. And I guarantee you they were either like a mix of Kurt Cobain lyrics (laughs) mixed with a lot of like, um, kind of Walt Whitman shit because I just watched dead poet society. Um, And just, you know, kind of riot girl adjacent type of thoughts. And man, that was what writing club was about, was just dumb kids who wanted to be beatniks. I'm so into it because you are absolutely correct. That was 100% a thing in the 90s. I got the bug. It bit me too. Yeah. I have the worst poetry you could ever imagine in some of my old journals. Definitely went to the New York Cafe when I went to when I'd skip school and go to New York every once in a while. Yeah. Um, felt wildly out of place and left. <laughs> like I didn't drink coffee. And I was like, I Good don't for know. You. You had shame. Where I as I did not, but go so ahead. So much shame. And then just left. But when I tell you that the the death of VHS is probably a good thing. Because there is somewhere, there exists a tape of me attending a poetry slam night. And reading my poetry, but also reading the lyrics to an Ani DeFranco song. (laughs) And if that ever came out, would I tell you that I would run down to Hollywood and Vine? (laughs) I'd run down to Sunset (laughs) and just roll myself all over the Walk of Fame, licking the sidewalk until I expired. I mean it. (laughs) I think we found your seven deadly monkeys. I think we we need to find this document of oh, uh, a, of a time where I cannot, <laughs> I cannot even imagine years, all these years later, what that looks like. I'm I'm feeling like that cold shame spread through my body right now, just thinking about it. <laughs> I had a crush on the boy who lived next door, 
and he and his family had just moved in like when I was like in 10th grade and I thought he was so cute and I was friends with his mom and he was older he was going to college already in New Paltz and I spent an entire summer an entire summer Millie (laughs) with my speakers angled out of my windows towards his house and I played Charles Mingus Mingus uh, um for the entire summer so he he would think I was cool So you were doing like a a say anything esque type of like the song will be blasted and then they will understand how I feel type yeah, of and thing. And they will understand that like I am mature and I listen to jazz and I write oh poetry and I'm so cool. <laughs> Meanwhile, imagine say anything for 90 days straight. <laughs> because after like the third day. You go from romantic to psychotic. (laughs) And my grandmother would constantly yell at me and be like, turn that down. Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) And I remember one day she came up to my room and she's like, why are your speakers pointed out of the house? Like, I don't want to listen to it in the house, but why are they pointed out of the house? You are annoying the entire neighborhood. She was so livid with me. And he did not give a... He was in college. I was 10th grade. So I need to ask, what made you pick Charles Mangus? Did you, was he a jazz guy or and you were just trying to appeal to that part of him? Or you just wanted him to think that you were kind of like sophisticated? Yes. I worked at a cafe up the street called Lovey's and they always played jazz. And that's kind of how I got into listening to jazz on my own. Yeah. And... Of course, because, you know, how my family is. So I would be listening to some jazz and my grandma's like, oh, yeah, like we used to see that guy down at Bird, like Birdland or whatever. Like, I'm like, what? And she's like, oh, yeah, he lived in the neighborhood. And I'm like, he being Sonny Rollins? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And she would pull out records. And I'm like, where are these records coming from? You only listen to Alabama. Like, it is, it was wild. (laughs) So because she grew up in Harlem, she always had stories. And yeah. Here's a bonkers story for you. So my great grandfather, my grandfather's dad, whom I never met, he left the family when he was when my granddad was like nine, nine or ten. And they never talked about him much like my great grandma never talked about him. Nothing. Cut to five years ago. Five years ago. I'm in my late 30s. My grandmother very casually on the phone mentions oh, yeah, well, you know, your great granddad and the whole Billie Holiday thing. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't. What are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, like when he ran away from the family, it was because he was running away with Billie Holiday. (gasps) So long story short, my great granddad played stride piano. He played jazz piano. I have a couple of his CDs now, Um, but he ran away from his family to go tour with Billie Holiday in Europe and they were engaged and it didn't work out. And he came back and basically like played the Catskills and died in the Catskills. Oh my God. No one thought to tell me this until five years. The whole time I'm blasting Charles Mingus out the window for this goon next door to here. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) thought to say, Hey, we have a direct connection to jazz in our family. And then all of a sudden, I, I looked up pictures. I looked. I talked to a historian because I was like, <gasps> "How do I find out 
more about my great granddad. And there was this historian in England who kind of knew all about him. So I just <gasps> called this guy on the phone and talked to him and he sent me all these photos. And it is wild. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So I played jazz out the window because it's in my blood, Millie. It's in my blood. Oh, my God. Well, duh. Now knowing that. <laughs> but really, the true answer to that is the reason I played jazz is because I went over there to the house one day and I had tea with his mom and she was showing me like this Caravaggio book of paintings. and They had like a Caravaggio poster up and I was looking through the stack of CDs that they had in the kitchen and I was like, oh, what's this? And she said that one of one of the CDs was his and it was a Charles Mingus CD. And I was like, oh, I, I love it. You took the away. little piece of information mm-hmm. and you hinged an entire crush on it. I Let love it. Let me store it. this away. And he's like, I cannot wait to get back to college. Like, what is you live next door to a tiny maniac. I cannot wait to get <laughs> out of here. You know, it makes me wonder if this guy is on a podcast right now talking about how he had a neighbor once that used to blast Charles Mingus out of the windows of their house. And what does it mean? Also, keep in mind that I grew up across the street from a cable from our cable company. So my house was on this very short dead end street and it was just like three houses and the cable company. So the cable company guys would be like out on their trucks eating sandwiches, like with their work boots on spitting smoking cigarettes and i'm like here's charles mingus to rifle through your day (laughs) like everyone in the neighborhood thought i was nuts (laughs) (laughs) so you were a neighborhood creep but you were into jazz so you were like the neighborhood jazz creep really which is kind of the best creep i would love that kind of creep to be honest I was a jazz creep. That's the title of my next book. (laughs) It's about all of my crushes and how horribly wrong they went. I want the the cover to your next book to be a picture of you in a soft lit cafe with a saxophone in your hands. And you're just laughing with like like your saxophones in one hand and then you have the other hand up just kind of like a, you know, a laugh, (laughs) just a just a like a devil may care laugh. And then I want jazz creep to be painted (laughs) across the cover in a watercolor stroke. It's happening. And I'm going to be holding in the in the hand that's just kind of like whatever saxophone in one hand, a little notebook with angels on the cover in the other. (laughs) I wrote my finest words in this book. (laughs) When it comes time for you to release your spoken word album, that will be the cover. (laughs) Just angels. All right. My my Aries brain is going now. I'm like, all right, I will read the spoken word. You will play Charles Mingus out of a speaker coming from another building. And we will take this on the road. And this, will <laughs> be a, this will be our live podcast. This is our live show. If you guys want to get to meet Millie and I, they'll be like, didn't they used to talk about movies? Why are they just blast have a stacks pointed at us from the stage blasting charles mingus with this picture of an angel in the backdrop what did we pay for they're not even here they're not even talking they're just letting charles mingus do all the talking for them (laughs) (laughs) our first live tour is going to be called jazz creeps yeah (laughs) join us on the jazz creeps tour speaking of movies we should get into ours oh my god it almost feels like i forgot like why here today so millie yes 
can you tell us about our theme? I sure will. Um, because it's a holiday, technically, soon, we decided that we were going to do a theme called Complicated Mother-Daughter Relationships. Sounds about right for Mother's Day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> listen, when it comes down to it, you know, there's there's a lot of movies about mothers and daughters. We all know this. There's a lot of movies about family, about great grandfathers being engaged to Billie Holiday and their great granddaughters. Um, oh, no, wait, that's not a movie yet. Oh, it's because Danielle needs to write it. OK, um, but, you know, it's a th it's a thing where we're like, oh, sure, we could play like a really positive portrayal of a mother and daughter just being like super kind and um, familial and warm and lovely to each other. But you don't come here for that. <laughs> <laughs> we know who you are. You don't come here for the warm fuzz. <laughs> no, you wouldn't come for that. You would come to hear whatever the jazz creeps had to talk about today, which is, you know, movies that are about complicated mother and daughter relationships. Um, maybe they're bad moms, you know. Not everyone wanted kids. And so many people don't admit that, that like right. they were moms, not by choice, but by circumstance. And they ain't good at it. My mom isn't good at it. <laughs> My mom was terrible at it. She tried her hardest, but she was not good at it. <laughs> yeah, I think it is kind of a sacred cow, really. The mom, the role of the mother. But that's why we wanted to explore this. Exactly. Right? And I think with these two movies... Um, like I said, I, I think I just kind of off the cuff said bad moms. Um, they're complicated. <laughs> they're complicated. Um, one of them one is, is really bad. <laughs> one is really just bad. I will, I will say that one is just bad. Um, the other one, I think it is sort of a back and forth between whether or not she might be bad or is misunderstood. I don't know what, what to think of it, but I, I would love to hear your take on it because it's your movie. So I, it would be amazing to hear you your thoughts on it you know what i mean well i'm gonna break it down let me tell you first of all that my pick for this theme of complicated mother-daughter relationships is mermaids which was released in 1990 and directed by richard benjamin sometimes i feel like you're the child and i'm the grown-up what is this cheese ball pick-me-ups and for dessert marshmallow kebabs don't do anything i wouldn't do I'm trying not to drive too fast. Well, after my mom, nothing seems fast. Richard Benjamin also directed The Money Pit, and he's an actor, <laughs> which yes. I just found fascinating. <laughs> he's been in tons of films, uh, but he's also a director in his own right. And this, this screenplay was written by June Roberts, but it's based on the book Mermaids by Patty Dan. And what I didn't know until I started doing research for this um, show is that Patty Dan got her MFA at Columbia and Mermaids was her thesis. Hmm. Can you imagine my thesis being turned into a movie? My master's thesis was about Victorian motherhood in the representation of modern day mommy blogs. I would watch that movie. What? <laughs> like, wouldn't even think to turn it into anything other than what it is. Like 80 pages of me just being like, meh. <laughs> hey, I didn't even I didn't even get to a thesis. I, I dropped out. So there you go. You can write a thesis whenever you want. You don't have to be in school to write one. <laughs> can I this podcast it. be my thesis? Please? It is. It is now. Thank you. 
So we've got this film and this film is, is just filled with stars. So you have Cher starring as Mrs. Flax, who's this flamboyant mother of two who leaves town every time she ends a relationship. You have Winona Ryder playing Charlotte Flax, who's 15. Um, she's this young girl who's obsessed with Catholicism. And she was actually nominated for a Golden Globe for this, which I also didn't know. Mm. Then you have a very tiny Christina Ricci playing Kate Flax, who's nine. And she's kind of this swimming obsessed little sister who does things like walking around with a pumpkin on her head. <laughs> which is the best scene in this movie. <laughs> the best. Somebody make me a gift of that, please. Um, you have Bob Hoskins, who plays the, you know, he the the shoe store owner in this small town. Um and Michael Schiffling, who plays a convent groundskeeper. He's also the school bus driver. He's like this all-around New England guy. And just for a fun fact, Michael Schiffling is 60 years old now, and he's a handcrafted furniture maker in Pennsylvania. Like, he has a furniture store. 60? So he went from 16 candles. He's 60. Oh, my God. I can't even... That's I can't process it. Simply, yeah. simply feeling old myself. So that's yeah. crazy. He was hot as shit. And only did a couple of movies and then dropped out of Hollywood to, like, open his furniture store. Yeah, he's become, like, legend. Yeah. So he's just doing it. So this, <laughs> the synopsis of this movie is that it's 1963. Mrs. Flax and her daughters are living in Oklahoma. And they move to Eastport, Massachusetts after she ends an affair with her boss. Uh, this is the 18th time they've moved. And they rent, they rent a small house whose only neighbor is a convent, which is thrilling to Charlotte, who's this, again, obsessed with Catholicism. Rachel, Mrs. Flax, starts dating Lou, the Bob Hoskins character, uh, from the shoe store. Charlotte falls in love with the first man she sees. But to be fair, that man is Michael Sheffley. It's <laughs> a good one. Yep. And Kate is mostly just, you know, adorable and trying to become an Olympic swimmer. So... At its heart, this is definitely a mother and daughter coming of age story where both the mother and daughter are coming of age because Rachel is emotionally immature and kind of like she's the kind of mom who only knows how to cook hors d'oeuvres. So that's what she serves as full meals, mm -hmm. um, which I think is just a lovely little beat for this movie. It's just so fun. Classic hot mom. Classic hot mom. She's like, I don't have time to even make you a sandwich. I, I got to go out there and be hot. Yeah. And then again, like you have Charlotte, who Charlotte is obsessed with her father who left when she was born. And she only saw him once through an eclipse, which is a real kick in the dick to her mom. <laughs> like, I met this guy once while I was staring at the sun, but I like him more than you. Like, I think about him more than you. <laughs> like, damn, I know she damn. only serves you hors, hors d'oeuvres, but you haven't gotten scurvy yet. Like, you've been okay. Give her a break. Let her be hot. <laughs> like, it's so weird that she's like, her whole focus in this movie is like her dad. So she wears his shoes all the time. And it's just so strange. Mm -hmm. um, but their central conflict really is that, I think, is that Charlotte wants Rachel to be someone she will never be, which is like this buttoned down 1950s mom. And Rachel cannot handle being judged at all even from right. her children. So that leads, you know, Charlotte's also kind of our, our narrator in this film and you get to hear her inner thoughts. Um, you know, Joe is kind of her, as her crush, uh, we learn a little bit about him. He rings the bell at the convent 
very important job in 1963. But he's also like the center of the small town whispers because he used to play sports um, and he had a girlfriend and then his girlfriend moved away kind of amidst these rumors that she was pregnant. So we're supposed to believe that this just ruined his fucking life forever and he never dated again. (laughs) Even though he's like 25 now, like he just works at the convent. He's like, it's fine. I had one girlfriend. I'm good. Um, So that's kind of like her. And, you know, Charlotte, when she sees him, is very awkward. And Winona Ryder plays it perfectly, of course. And she says things like, you know, please don't let me, please, God, don't let me fall in love and want to do disgusting things. She's so funny. I love a horny Catholic. I mean, this Winona Ryder character kind of reminds me of like Mary Catherine Gallagher, where they're both like, you know, these Catholic schoolgirls, but are just completely obsessed with thinking about sex. And it's that, that, that energy of that. It's basically that energy. The entire movie is this like, oh, my God, please don't let me jump on top of him and ram my tongue down his throat whilst doing like our father who art in heaven. I mean, I'm like, yo, Catholics. Y'all are fucking some people up. Okay. <laughs> Including me. But I'm just saying I, I identify with that shit, right? Because, you know, right. it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a character we've seen before, but Winona Ryder is really good at it. She's great at it. And also because it's 1963, it takes on a more interesting, more believable kind of like sheen to it for me. Like it takes on a whole different feeling. Yeah. Plus, she's Jewish. Yes. Which is what Cher's character keeps telling her. Like, we're Jewish. Why are you obsessed with Catholicism? It is one of my favorite lines in the movie where Charlotte is like kneeling down and praying and Cher just walks by her bedroom door, comes back and goes, Charlotte, we're Jewish, and then walks away. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. But then you do, you get to instantly see how charlotte's obsession with catholicism is fucking her up because when jfk dies charlotte runs to the convent kisses joe basically disassociates and steals rachel's car because she thinks she's pregnant and she just drives through the night and ends up in connecticut and you know her the car breaks down and she knocks on the door of this family and has this whole story about how her name is sal val and (laughs) it's like she just completely freaks out because she kissed him and thinks she's pregnant and has to like go to a gynecologist who's like, um, you're still a virgin. So I don't know. Like, I don't know that I don't know that I buy that this hot mom never talked to her daughters about sex. Yeah, there is that for sure. Uh, it feels like it might have come up in it. But, you know, like I said, and as a recovering Catholic, maybe I will say that I definitely did not hear a damn word about sex growing up. So I could kind of commiserate because I, you know, I don't know if I would have thought I kissed a guy. Now I'm going to have to go to another town to have his love child and be (laughs) the scorn of the community. Um, He's that potent, (laughs) but there was a, a lack of education about sex that I deeply connected with her character on so that's true that's yeah. true and again it's 1963 so it makes perfect sense that she'd yeah. be like i kissed him i'm pregnant this is weird um but she flips out she like totally dissociates and i think that like when she comes back it's the conversation that she has with Cher that i think is just so interesting because you get to see them fight and they fight so good in this movie like these two characters fight so well um i th- was reading about this and in the research i read that Someone else was supposed to play Charlotte, but Cher was like, 
she she's not she's not my daughter. Like she doesn't even feel like my daughter or look like she would be my daughter. So Cher basically had this actress fired and then the actress won a lawsuit against the <gasps> filmmakers. Wow. And got like a six figure payout because she's like, I am losing this role. Let me get this straight because Cher cannot extend her her disbelief enough to understand how I could act like her daughter. So Winona Ryder got it. But I love I love Rachel. I love Cher in this role. She had a string of hits for acting in the 80s, starting with Moonstruck. Yep. Actually, no, starting with Mask. Mask, yeah. So Mask, Moonstruck, and this, um, where she really proved that she had some chaps. And I like this character. I like seeing a mom who's like, you know, I'm not going to be penned in. Like, she doesn't care that people stare at her when she walks through town in her saucy little outfits. But she definitely is used to being the center of attention, which is also strange when you have kids. <laughs> so she's kind of fascinating to me. And I like I like her relationship with Lou. Bob Hoskins is just so delightful in this movie. And he plays this guy who, like, um, his kids are older and grown and out of the house. His wife has left him, but they're not divorced. But I gotta say, first of all, a couple things about Lou that maybe would make me not put my children in his direct line right away. Mm-hmm. Um, when she sees him again after the shoe store, it's at a parent-teacher night. Why was he there? If his kids are grown up, it's not like this is like a Better Business Bureau event. So he's just hanging around school at parent-teacher night for no reason. That is curious. I, w- I, w- I didn't wonder. I'm like, is he there to like hand out his business card to sell shoes? Like, what's he doing there? Yeah. Uh, it was a little unclear. But then it's it kind of amplified because later we'll see that he has a room in his house that's already fully ready for kids with like the double beds and the bright paint and an attic full of costumes. So, look, I am maybe a person who is not prone to whimsy, <laughs> but that's fucking weird, dude. Like, it's fucking weird. It's <laughs> 1963. It's fucking weird. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's a little like, okay, yeah, maybe he, um, you know, is just very nostalgic for his days as a father to like young kids. And he just kind of kept the room the same and, you know, yeah. kept all their toys and all their shit. But at a certain point, if they're like fully grown, I don't know. Maybe, like, maybe paint that time. room, man. Turn it into an office or a storage room, like something. I think yeah. it, it, it translates as whimsy, and it should. And I'm a total creep, but <laughs> <laughs> that was my first thought as an adult watching this movie for the first time in like 20 years. Well, and this is, I think, the thing that is interesting about his character is that he's kind of like. He wants to settle down. He wants to be in her life and wants to be, you know, kind of a father figure to her children. Mm -hmm. And she's like very, very guarded. I mean, listen, she's moved 18 times. (laughs) Can you imagine moving every time you break up with someone? Well, and this is the part because, you know, I did question um, because, you know, I grew up loving this movie. I grew up... um, it's kind of like a dirty dancing type thing where it was like it, it's an 80s movie or an early 90s movie that took place in the 1960s. And they play a lot mm-hmm. of like 60s music and there's a lot of like 60s clothes and everything. I, I love that, actually, like just very specifically love an, an, <laughs> an 80s or early 90s take on the 60s. It's just really, really <laughs> fascinating to me. But then I started thinking about it 
because when you brought it to the table for this episode, I was like, yeah, that is a complicated relationship. And and is that a thing that she moved her kids so much that they weren't able to like uh, really get a foothold on their lives because their their mother was just sort of like erratic and moving them around all the time. And it was all about men. Yeah. Really, you know, and that's Charlotte's argument with her eventually. Like they have a big blow up um, because, you know, Rachel pushes Lou away, but she also pushes her kids away. Like she doesn't want to have these serious conversations about her choices. And they have this huge blow up because she goes out one night um, and she leaves Charlotte at home to babysit Kate and they get drunk on jug wine. (laughs) And then Charlotte dresses up like her mom. She dresses up like Rachel and they go to the convent. You know, Kate's just kind of picking up rocks while Charlotte goes up to see Joe. And here's here's the crucial question of this movie. Can you imagine losing your virginity to a man 10 years your senior at a convent while you were cosplaying as your mother. Because <laughs> that is what happens next. <laughs> She's not having sex again ever. Neither one of them is having sex again ever. <laughs> because yeah, the whole night ends in disaster. Joe is traumatized. <laughs> they have to be traumatized. Charlotte's traumatized. Like, there's no way anyone's having sex again after this, the events of the end of this movie. Um, but what I love about it is it leads to Charlotte and Rachel, Winona Ryder and Cher, having this huge blowout fight of the kind that I don't think you really see a lot of in film with mothers and daughters. Um you see a lot of dads and sons kind of like screaming and slamming the wall and like punching tables and shit. But this is like a real knockdown drag out without the physicality kind of fight mm-hmm. where Charlotte puts it all out on the table and is like, we're sick of moving because Cher instantly is like, pack your bags. We're out of here. And this one's on you. Like we're moving because of you this time. So Charlotte's like, well, then we're not moving. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm yeah. not leaving. We have to stay and face this. Um, so I loved, I just loved that fight. I love that their complicated relationship is, just so heightened at the right moments in this movie. Yeah. I think this is something that's a similarity between your movie and my movie is this idea of like the mother and the daughter sort of like sharing the same space with men. Right. Because there's a moment where Cher comes home from a, is it a New Year's Eve party? And she has Joe drive her home. And, you know, I think like in her merriment or whatever, she like lands a kiss on him. And it happens to be at the same time that Charlotte is like looking out the window. And mm-hmm. it kind of confirms this entire fear that she has that is my mom is going to steal all my boyfriends and she's hotter and more dynamic and, right. you know, cooler than I am. And she kind of flips the fuck out because of it. And, you know, and, and share for whatever, you know, is, is trying to rationalize it. Like it was just a dumb kiss and yeah, maybe it was a little, a little too much. Um, but it was that thing where you realize that that is the tension between yes. the mother and the daughter is it all just comes back to men. And that's kind um, of the dynamic that Rachel has set up inadvertently. Yeah, because like you said earlier, like she has made sure their whole lives revolve around men in that inadvertent way. Yeah. So she's definitely set up this dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And and just the idea that Charlotte idolizes this mythic father 
of hers that she stared at once through um, <laughs> Eclipse sunglasses. Um, but yeah, and and then you start when you start kind of unpeeling that a little bit in the movie, you do wonder, okay, like maybe you know what's the dysfunction here. But it's just it's an interesting dynamic they have. And and being a teenager, I was a teenager with a hot mom, too. Um, you know, Same. it doesn't help <laughs> when I'm like a freak, when I'm a jazz freak and my mother is simply beautiful and perfect. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Look, I wrote an actual whole chapter in my book about it. Yeah. Like it is deep when you have a hot mom. Yeah. And also our moms were like. Like, we come from a generation where most people had their kids when they were, like, in their 20s, like, earlier. So your moms are also not that much older than you. Exactly. So they're, like, in their prime looking hot. And you're when you're, like, in the depths of the worst you will ever look. Yes. <laughs> and it when is you're not at your sidious. <laughs> <laughs> but I love this. I just love this movie. I think it holds up. I think it's a great example of complicated mother-daughter relationships. And... It ends the way most 90s movies end with, you know, a bunch of white women dancing in a kitchen. Like, it's not a not a 90s movie if you don't have a bunch of white women dancing in a kitchen. To an old tune from the good old days, right? Absolutely. Here's where I knew. I watched the, the Queen's Gambit. And here's where I knew that that show was fully written by a man. Right? The first moment I knew is when she played chess against her crush and immediately got her period. <laughs> and I'm like, this is written by a man. 100%. Because guess what? I've never gotten my period based on an emotional, like overwhelming emotional situation. <laughs> like just dropped it in that moment. But also... There are so many scenes of this character in the Queen's Gambit, like dancing around drunk in her underwear. And I don't know, maybe my life is boring. I don't know. I have never danced around naked in my underwear in a kitchen. Like, I just have never done that. (laughs) And look, I don't dance because I don't have that kind of joy in my heart. We know that. But (laughs) if I were to dance, it would not be like with a jug of fucking vodka in my underwear. Yeah. Let me just tell you right now, as a person who does dance and who does have that whimsy in her heart, I'm still not dancing in the kitchen because a exposure, right? Thank I'm like, you. first of all, there's like windows in here. What if like uh, one of my hot neighbors is looking through the window and sees me doing like some like bullshit goth dance, practicing my <laughs> goth dance moves or whatever. On top of that, like for me, I I, I don't know. We didn't have a stereo in the kitchen to yeah. dance to. So I did all that shit in my bedroom with the door double, triple locked and a, and a chair in front of it because I don't want anybody seeing this. I'm like, this is my own. This is my own thing. It's and just I do it you. in a tight, a tight quarter. It's got to be <laughs> barricaded. <laughs> I am now envisioning that, you know, that goth video where they're all like with the fake dreads and dancing like really fast with their arms and hands. The one they made fun of on um, the, the, not East Venom, the Righteous Gem Zones. Yeah, they, they, um, (laughs) they, and then the meme is that it's set to like um, Mariah Carey's Christmas song and that kind of thing. (laughs) I'm just imagining you in your room being like, I've got these three feet to move around in. I'm going <laughs> to You don't know how true that is. <laughs> I'm 
I'm like doing the picking up apples, you know, and I'm all by myself. Like no one's getting in this bitch. I'm not doing it. Like got to keep that perimeter super tight. Kitchen (laughs) is not happening. Oh god! Well, this was great. I highly recommend if you haven't seen it before or haven't yeah. seen it in a while, just give it a give it a look. See what you think. I think it holds up. Yeah, I did too. I but I think it's very very enjoyable to watch. And honestly, like if you're looking for like the three Michael Shuffling movies that you haven't seen, like I guess there is only three, maybe yeah. four, but I think three. Um, this is a good one. He kind of reminds me. He's got this very like Ron Kirby um, from Douglas Sirk movie, Rock Ooh. Hudson vibes. You know, he's got that. He's kind of this like I'm just a sensitive um, person that like does all the tasks, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the town, and I'm wearing my winter clothing. Yeah, he's just like a hot brick. Yes, <laughs> exactly. He's a hot brick with a rake. That's his job. That's his job. In every movie, he's a hot brick <laughs> with a rake. Oh my God, so good. I love it. Well, what are you bringing to the table? Oh Lord, here we go. <laughs> I think this one needs whimsy. a disclaimer <laughs> for the I opening know. scene alone. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this one is going to upset everyone. <laughs> Cannot wait to offend fucking everybody on our podcast. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, so. (laughs) So my movie for this week for the theme of complicated mothers and daughters is a movie from 1976. It was directed by Lino Broca, and it's called In Siang. Ano ba sa palagay niya? Isang sagot lang ang kailangan ko. Oo o hindi? Oo. Hindi na ako makain sa kanina. Hindi na. Alright, to start, I would really like to talk about Lino Broca. Please. Um, he's the great Filipino film director who made this movie. And I gotta say, in, in all truthfulness... I did not realize that the Philippines even had great auteurs before I knew about him. I didn't know. Yeah. And I only really found out about him as more of his films sort of were becoming available online and on home video, which is to say only recently. And, um, you know, as many people know, I'm half Filipino. My mom's from the Philippines. But, you know, I basically spent my entire childhood not really knowing much about my Filipino heritage, um, you know, which is something that really bothers me to this day. It, it really kind of haunts me, to be honest. Um, and I think the biggest reason for that is because my mother was and is the only person in her family to immigrate to the United States. Everybody mm-hmm. else is still in the Philippines. Um, and I had never even met my Filipino grandparents or, e- or any of my 11 aunts and uncles, because my mom comes from like a big family, let alone my cousins. I have yeah. so many cousins. Um, I didn't meet any of them until I was an adult. When I went to the Philippines for the first time, I was in my late 20s, maybe. And, and really, the only other Filipino person I knew besides my mom were just like her friends uh, growing up. And that's really it. Um, and so when I got to college, you know, I think I really... I started kind of really thinking about myself 
racially when I was in high school. Mm. Um, I definitely wasn't ready before then. I was very much like, I was very confused about who I was. I'll just say that. And when I was in like, you know, senior year of high school, maybe early college is when I started kind of really thinking about this. And, you know, the only movies from the Philippines that I ever saw at that point, especially in college, were basically like women in prison movies. Right. When it comes down to it. And uh, that was the only thing I knew about the Philippines, like from a landscape perspective, like in film was that, you know, they were like women in prison in a jungle. Pam <laughs> Greer was in it. Right. right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Lena Broca movies were really the first time I ever saw like Filipino actors who were speaking in Tagalog and they were like normal people. Right. They were not like weird prison guards or like henchmen or whatever. It was like <laughs> normal fucking people. Like real narratives, real lives. Yeah, real stories. And honestly, it was like a revelation for me. I mean, I honestly don't think that I'm exaggerating when I say that. It, yeah. It really did change everything for me as a film lover and a person who appreciates film. And so like, all right, a lot of people kind of call him, they kind of call him like the Filipino fastbender because... You know, he was this prolific filmmaker. He he was gay. He was a gay man. He was making kind of these like melodramas and personal stories. So that I think that that comparison to Fassbender is kind of apt. Michael Fassbender has done a lot. <laughs> I didn't know that he was so deep. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I know. It's like a Steve McQueen thing. It's like Fassbender, Fassbender. <laughs> we are talking about Rainier Werner Fassbender, by the way, the German director. <laughs> <laughs> Not the naked guy who is living sexy in midair. I just need to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So Lito Broker was influenced as a filmmaker by watching a lot of like American movies from the 50s and 60s. Um, but at the same time, when he was making his films, he, he was making movies about people who weren't really in movies at this time, especially in the Philippines. Like he was making movies about gay people, the poor. Mm -hmm. sex workers people who lived in the slums you know and he made like i think he made like close to 70 films Whoa. in his lifetime which is amazing if you consider that he only lived to be 52 because oh. he died in a car accident but um so he made in that short period of time he made like almost 70 films and was way ahead of his time it seems like with the stories that he was chasing and, and developing definitely and Honestly, for me, I think the most important thing to know about him was that he was really a man of the people like he like most people from the Philippines. He was extremely poor when he grew up and he became an artist and he advocated for other artists in the Philippines. And he created this independent film company and he used a lot of like non-professional actors who later became like big Filipino film stars. And he used a lot of, um, you know, kind of like local people in his films as extras. And he was a political activist. I mean, he he was extremely critical of the Marcos regime mm. and of the martial law era in the Philippines, which if you don't know about, you should... Um, Google or watch the uh, documentary about Amel DeMarcos that came out like I think it was last year. Yeah, I think last year. But, you know, it was this era in the Philippines was an extremely crooked and fucked up time. And Lino Broca was arrested for protesting against the Marcoses and they were and they were trying. I mean, they were basically trying to censor 
all the artists and filmmakers left and right in the Philippines, I mean, basically they, if they wanted every movie and every representation about the Philippines to be like perfect. And if it was less than perfect, it was banned. Like, you know, and obviously you can see with a film like this, they didn't want anything like this out there. Right. And a lot of times, like as he was getting more famous he actually had to sneak his films out of the country because they were banned so that they could play it like can and Whoa. like other international film festivals. I mean, it was just like that kind of scenario there for him. Um, there's still so many films I haven't seen of his because unfortunately they're really hard to track down. And I mean, there are like a few online that are like, you know, they're not really that great of quality and they're, su- and they're not subtitled. Some of the ones on YouTube are definitely not subtitled. Um, but there are at least two that are available to watch. And, um, you know, it's basically his most famous movie, arguably, which is called Manila and the Claws of Light that came out in 1975. And then the film that we're going to talk about today. Those are pretty much the only two. And wow. really, the only reason why they're even available, honestly, in this quality, in this great, pristine, like, you know, restored quality is because of Martin Scorsese. Right. And, you know, that's why in that episode, when we talked about him, I was like, I'm extremely thankful for him because he was basically like, you know, saving, he's saving Filipino movies for people to watch. And I just, I will always respect him for that. Absolutely. And he's done that, like his, his film archivist, um, like a huge part of his life is dedicated to restoring films around the world. Yes. And I think that's admirable as well. Yeah, yeah. So this movie, In Siang, like it, so I'll just give you a little synopsis of it. It takes place in this very poor part of Manila and it's in a slum. And In Siang, who's played by um, Hilda Coronel, who is wonderful. She's a wonderful actress. Um, she's a young woman who lives with her mother, um, who is played by Mona Lisa. <laughs> it's her it's her stage name. She was a, a kind of a popular Filipino actress from like the 30s and 40s. But her stage name is Mona Lisa, which I'm like, such a good great for stage her. name. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty tight. I'd choose that <laughs> if I had the, if I had the chance. Um, so she's living with her mother and, of course, her extended family in this like very small place in the slums. And it's understood that her father has run off from the family and has a new Mm -hmm. girlfriend and now his relatives are staying with them in this in this tiny tiny little house um which of course if you've been to the philippines you know it's not a real house it's open air basically with like chicken wire over the windows so there you go um so her mother man is like seething from resentment from anyone that is remotely related to her ex-husband like right. out the gate. Oh, yeah. The first time you see her on screen, she's yelling. Yeah. She is fucking pissed every <laughs> second of the day. And she doesn't like her daughter. Um, and I think it's because the daughter reminds her of the ex-husband. And, you know, the mother is ruthless. She kicks out the family. You know, she's basically like, put these kids out in the street. Take those clothes off of them. We, you know, fuck them. These people, I don't know where they're going to go, but not in my house. And, you know, shortly after the mom's new boyfriend moves in and it's this guy named Dado who is played by Ruel Vernal and he is much younger than her. And he (laughs) he kind of resembles like a Filipino Burt Reynolds. Yeah, he's got that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like a (laughs) Filipino Burt Reynolds. From the 70s, if you can imagine it. Um, 
And he's also kind of he's kind of generally known as like the town bully. He's just kind of this like big stud who picks on everybody and is like he runs kind of the town in that way, runs the kind of guys in the town, at least. Mm. And, um, you know, In Seung spends a lot of her days literally just working to the bone, like doing all the chores in the house, doing the shopping and is basically trying to avoid her mother and Dado as much as possible because they're just sort of like bad news. And it's tough, you know, they sleep very close to each other in kind of separate areas. But um, basically, the mother is always telling In Seung to turn on the faucet. Mm. So basically, in the Philippines, like um, you have essentially a water bucket. And yeah. that's kind of like how you would shower. And I think this is kind of common in like rural and kind of poor areas in Asia in general. But basically, it's just a giant bucket of water. And then you take like a water scooper and just kind of like douse yourself in water. And it's kind of like how you take a shower. Yeah. Um, when I went to the Philippines, I did that. So I, I, I was like, wow, this is a lot different than what I'm used to. Right. Um, so basically, in order to like muffle the noises of her and her new young boyfriend she has her own daughter turn on the faucet so that it'll just yeah you know, i mean just i can't even imagine like i'm just like that's so Brutal. so crazy but her mother obviously hates her just doesn't mm-hmm. like her doesn't want her around and she's just wicked just a mean woman and you know in Seong sort of has only really a few kind of like pleasures in her life and she she kind of she has a boyfriend his name is Beboat and um he's played by Rez Cortez and he's kind of this he's like this immature neighborhood idiot um <laughs> he's like he's just a dumb dumb and you know he gets bullied by Dado often so basically he's kind of like down down the rungs a few from from the big boss right mm. so anyway as as it turns out like one night Dado sneaks into Insyong's room and attacks her and she passes out and he rapes her and the next morning she is just beside herself i mean she's grief stricken this horrible thing has happened Ugh. to her and that you know it's heartbreaking Ooh, it's bad yeah it's really it's hmm. um they don't show it actually happening which it would have been a lot if that were the case but just the just the you know what's happening you just know it and yeah. it's not great um and basically the next day she's just crying and she's like in kind of the fetal position on the bed. And the mom comes in and asks her what happened. And, you know, Insyong tells her that like Dado raped her and the mother, you know, of course, at first goes apeshit on Dado. But then he lies and tells her that Insyong was the reason. Like it's mm-hmm. that stupid reason of like she was walking around naked, tempting me, which did not happen, obviously. But that's his stupid excuse. and. Sadly, the mother decides to believe him instead of her own daughter. And it's just heartbreaking. Like, you're just like, wow, this is really bad. It's just a really bad scene. Um, So at that point, basically, in Seong's friend, you know, from the corner market is basically like people in the neighborhood are talking about this, you know, and the only way you can really get out of it is if you try to get B-Boat to like elope with you like basically right. you need your boyfriend to take you away from all this and so you know in Seong tells her boyfriend this situation and and, and says you know hey if you really love me like we got to get the fuck out of here this is really bad and you know he sort of was like yeah, yeah yeah i love you blah 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 and they spend the night together for the first time and then the next morning he completely disappears ditches her 
ditches her in a hotel. And this is after he has spent like his his main interaction with her in this movie has been trying to get her to sleep with him. Yes. And then once he gets that and she's like, promise me that you're not going to leave me. And he's like, nope, I won't. And then he sure does. Yeah. And it's like just the worst feeling. Like you're Mm. just feeling so badly for her. Like you're just like, what the fuck, man? Like this, she cannot catch a break. This is awful. And as you can imagine, she fucking snaps. Like she has had it with this. And she decides on a plan, which is that She's going to pretend to fall in love with Dado. She's going to get Dado to beat up Bebo for her. A number one uh, on the list. And then, you know, event, she's going to tell her mother that they're in love and that they're running away, running away together. So that's the movie. And um, I don't want to give away the ending necessarily because, you know, I don't know if I should do that. But I, um, yeah. in general... So this movie is just incredible on so many levels for me. I mean, as much as it's like, oh, my God, representation. Oh, my God, this is like a place that I'm from. And, um, you know, I remember seeing places like this when I was in the Philippines because, you know, like my my own mother is not she grew up in places like this. Like, right. She was not, you know, from the chic downtown. She was from the country Mm -hmm. Uh, and seeing my own relatives in these conditions, too. You know, so I connected with that part, the visual style of it. I connected with a lot. Um, but you know, there was a lot of like, I mean, there are moments of real high melodrama that I fucking appreciate. Like, yes, <laughs> listen, the psychotic seventies flute <laughs> makes a return. <laughs> we love it. It's like that three women flute that comes in like going, going all wild. <laughs> <laughs> the, the notes are like, speaking of jazz, it's like a jazz flute. <laughs> and and there are these moments where like you know that Lino Broca fucking grew up watching 50s and 60s American movies because there's like parts where he like closes he does this like close up on people's faces when the story just like takes a turn and you're like oh yeah it works so well it works so well and I love his smaller beats like there are a couple of like smaller stories built baked into this movie and one of them is this woman who thinks her daughter is going to be a star so she keeps taking her to like this studio and they're like she's she's like she's gonna be on tv today and then everyone as soon as she leaves like talks behind her back like I didn't see her on tv did you she said she was gonna be on this show I don't think that's ever gonna happen she can't even sing yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, she's like talking. What's it? The the show is called like Disco Rama or something. It's yeah. like a disco show. She's like, you know, basically taking her daughter to be on this disco show, and she just keeps not making the cut. Like, like no, and the mother is like, I don't. What's the problem? Right? She's like, it'll happen today. Yeah, today. it's happening. It's absolutely happening today. It's like delusion. And persistence. <laughs> it's delusion and persistence. It's our favorite theme. Our yes. favorite theme. And I love that, like, there's just always these, this line of guys outside the market who are just drunk. Yes. <laughs> and, like, just making fun of everything. Yeah, they're basically, <laughs> they're basically just, like, the peanut gallery. Like, they're just, like, drinking all day. And, like, everyone's, like, hitting them with umbrellas and, like, <laughs> shopping bags because they're true idiots. True idiots of the highest order. Um, but, you know, it's funny because there, there are moments that I love with this movie. Like I said, the high 
melodrama, um, you know, the nod to kind of these like 50s and 60s sort of, you know, American films. I mean, almost like a Douglas Sirk in a way, you know, which obviously like seems very campy. I think at this point, but yeah. you know, there's also there's this movie is hard to watch. I mean, obviously there's a lot of times where it is very, very hard to watch, but I think it's interesting because Lino Brooke was not, um, he's not shying away from that reality. Like, you mm. know, it, the Philippines is a very poor place. I mean, it's it, lots and lots of people are living in like abject poverty, certainly, certainly a kind of poverty that I have never seen in America ever. And, you know, and on, to be honest, I mean, I, I actually texted you because I was like, uh, the first scene of this movie is pigs being slaughtered in a factory. And yeah. uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> like it was tough, you know, to watch. It's like literally the first second of this movie is like a pig getting stabbed essentially. And, Oof. But that's it's part of the film. I mean, it's where Dada works. And it, it, I think that there was obviously some kind of symbolism there, mm-hmm. um, which but it's very jarring when you first turn it on. Yeah. But this is also like that that plant, that processing plant is really the only jobs available because so much of the movie is all of these young men saying, like, I wish I had a job and I wish like I want a job. I went down to the plant or I went down to the factory. I try, I'll do anything. And that's why they're hanging out in front of the store getting drunk, because they have nowhere else to go. Exactly. And I and I think it's the reason why somebody like Dotto is very he's trying to align himself with the mother because mm-hmm. he doesn't have any money and he borrows money from her all the time. Like, honestly, what makes his mom just a horrible person at the end of the day is that like she's like shaking Inseong down for like five pesos and yet he's like can I borrow 50 pesos she's like sure okay you know what I mean it's like the thing where you're like fuck man like that got me so bad that scene oh he's the worst and like I said I won't give away the ending but like Inseong gets her revenge and it is in a way that is you know, it's it, it's that feeling that I get when I watched Carrie, you know, and you're like, get him, like, just get him, like, yeah, fucking get him. And I know it's not ethical, but fuck it. You've experienced too much trauma from this life so far that if you have an opportunity to set up the scenario for bad people to get their due, girl, go for it. That's, I know that's not ethical, but that's how I feel. It's not ethical, but it's like it's a balancing of the scales a little bit. Yeah. I absolutely love this movie. And I think I didn't know what to expect going into it because I'd never heard of Lino Bracca and I'd never seen one of his films. And yeah. I was just so drawn into this world so instantly. And I think that is it's a skill. You have to be a very skilled filmmaker to make someone care so deeply so quickly you know i i would assume that a lot of our listeners probably hadn't heard of this movie i mean like i said i you know like i was only really aware of this film in the past five ten years and unfortunately his work is not out there in the way that other directors from the third world or wherever are out there even. But it's that thing where I think that this movie, it's a perfect example of the type of movie that needs to be shown and needs to be talked about. And um, cause it's compelling. It's like really compelling story. I think a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people might be turned off to things that have subtitles. Mm. Um, and a lot of people are turned off by older films in general. I mean, we're not in this space. We, we talk about older films all the time, but um 
you know, give give it a chance, like give things like this a chance, because honestly, like I would have never expected something like this coming out of the Philippines at that time. Right. right. I would have never expected that. And it's it's such a joy to discover stuff like this. Um, and I'm just glad we got to talk about it. I'm glad it fit this theme. Yeah. I mean, to a T. And I'm <laughs> glad that you picked it because I and this is one of my favorite things about our friendship and one of the reasons why why we started the podcast and why I'm so glad we started the podcast is because you are very skilled at recommending films that might not ever be on someone's radar. And this film might not have ever been on my radar. And I'm so glad I watched it. And it's opened up a whole new world to me of what could be possible in these older films, because it's not just older American films and it's not just older films that have been kind of you know, granted, you know, have been ordained as the the films to watch from other countries. Like there's such gems amidst, you know, the 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 stuff that we've already heard about. And I love it. I love it. I think that this is like it's it's a true discovery. And I think that's like you again, you're great at that. And you're great at like helping people understand that these older films can be still understood in a modern context and make sense. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, as we wrap up this episode to talk about Mother's Day, um, you know, I think these films are truly about complicated relationships between mothers and daughters. And like like we said at the beginning, it's like one's a little TBD. The other one is definitely I think we all know by now this this mother is not a one at all. Um but even in those scenarios, it's still like the story of seeing like a mother and a daughter on screen and sort of like figuring it out is it's always going to be interesting for me. I'm sure it's probably is for you, too. Absolutely. Well, especially when it's a teenage daughter and a mother, because I feel like there is something that happens when you're a teenager. And there are a few films that explore this, but. Not as well as these two, maybe, but I like that notion of thinking about, you know, the the primary worry about who is your daughter, what kind of woman is your daughter going to be and like kind of pushing her away because of that. Or there's some, there's just something there that I haven't quite put my finger on yet, but I think that that's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, me too. Well, I'm glad we we chose these. It was it was fun to talk about both of this these. Was, so. So much fun. Um, all right. Well, again, so awesome of you guys to check us out. And um, Danielle, why don't you give the people the movies for next week? Oh, boy. <laughs> if you guess this theme, y'all, I can't wait for you to try. Our movies <laughs> next week are Hereditary from 2018 and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. Ooh, this is gonna be good. I'm just laughing, thinking about it now. <laughs> oh boy, this is the most fun part of this podcast is picking these themes. I know it's so fun, and also I love dangling the movies out to people and not telling them what the theme is because it does. It's like, guess what? We know what it's about, but you don't. Uh, I'm sorry, that's cruel, but I, I love it. I secretly love it. But if you um, if you ever want to email us for any reason, we're at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. You can please find us on our social media. We are at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. 
We also have merch if you are interested. I saw what you did merch. Uh, it's in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you want even more from us, we've got a whole bunch of bonus episodes up at Stitcher Premium. And you can still use the promo code SAW for a free month. Ooh, ooh, ooh. If you want more of us, and why wouldn't you? Right. If you dare, if you dare, <laughs> if you dare into the lair of the jazz creeps, <laughs> if you dare be a jazz creep, return next week. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Mark one. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 